This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Your eyes on the times, you walk ready to speak up. But with so many problems, you're exhausted trying to keep up. This is the Church Politics Podcast, where you can get political commentary from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be conservative or progressive. We're trying to be Christian in the public square. And I'm black as heaven. I'm made in God's image. Nobody can change my settings. Hey man, cut off my knees and put an end to my search. It's easy to sell your soul when you don't know what it's worth. With you no good, Ann Camp, you're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney, a.k.a. Bishop Cooper's grandson, and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason-Dixon line, my play cousin, the right reverend, Christopher Butler. Chris, speaking of Chicago, I was actually in Chicago for not even 48 hours earlier this week. Didn't get a chance to, to holler at you. Wish I would have had uh, more of an opportunity to do that. But what I did have a chance to do was to have Uncle Remus's chicken. And we know, both of us know, and you know better than I, that there is a dispute internal to Chicago about who has better chicken, which is which is either Harold's chicken, which is fantastic and what I'm mostly used to because my, my, my wife lives on the south side, or Uncle Remus's chicken, which is more so on the west side. You know, I hadn't had Uncle Remus's chicken before. Always eat at Harold's almost every time I go to Chicago, right? Personally, I don't think anybody in Chicago is unbiased enough to say which is better. And so I want to take this chance to speak into this controversy, maybe even to solve this long-lasting controversy within within Chicago from a very objective perspective. I really love Harold's chicken. It's it's very few spots that are better than that. I did go to Uncle Remus's and it was outstanding. It, it was great. Somewhat similar, but they are different, right? Different enough to you, you where you can tell the difference. In. And so what I want to say is, you know, if someone were to ask me, is Uncle Remus better than Harold's? I would say that it's not worse. That they are both outstanding. And I wish I could come to a conclusion on that but i'm gonna say it's not worse and they're both great i I, i'm i'm stuck right now when i go back i'll try both again maybe maybe around the same time and make a judgment but as of right now i'm saying it's not worse because they're both outstanding chris i know you want to weigh in on in on this so I'm, i'm gonna give you a chance to do that i i wanted to weigh in on the chicken part but i think i have to say if somebody is listening to this podcast and you get elected president of the united states one day you gotta make <laughs> justin Gibney a diplomat to somewhere i mean that right there is diplomacy <laughs> at its finest so choose justin uh if you get elected <laughs> president everybody in chicago south side or west side knows uncle remus is better and I, I can say this, this October, I will officially have lived on the South Side longer than I lived on the West Side when I grew up. I'll be one year longer a South Sider. So I got a lot of love for Harold's. I got a lot of love for the South Side. But Uncle Remus Chicken is, is obviously better. 
And you're saying everybody knows that. It's just a matter of whether you admit that or not as a Chicago. Some people, some people are not able to admit it because of their uh, various affiliations. So if I talk to my man Charlie Dates, if I talk to some other uh, Southsiders, you're telling me they know Remus is better. They just won't admit Remus yeah. is better. So you're questioning your question their veracity on this issue. If you find them at an honest moment, give them a safe space to share. A safe space. <laughs> <laughs> that's what we're all looking for: safe spaces to share and, and and tell what we really think. That's all we're. That's all we're all we all can ask for, right? But I will say this: if you are in Chicago, you need to try one of those. You need to go to Uncle Remus, or you need to go go to Harold Chicken. Both have been serving the Chicago community for a long time, and you need to check that out. All right. So I, I, I tested it out. Man, I could go usually when I go there, I'm on the south side. So I'm usually going, you know, probably could still go to Harold's more often. But I'm gonna have to drop over to the, the west side. I'll see both of our parents are from the west side. So uh, you know, got some roots there and, and reason to, to head that way as well. So so make sure y'all check it out. But as I usually have to say, man, I, I gotta give a shout out to all our patrons and our supporters for supporting us in what we do and how we do it. All right. If you want to give to the Church Politics Podcast, all you got to do is go to patreon.com slash church politics. You can become a monthly giver. You can give $5. You can give $200. You can give $1,000 a month. It's up to you. But if you do that, you then get some of our premium episodes. So there are conversations that me and Chris have that everybody doesn't get to hear. But the folks that have you know decided to support us in a, in a stronger way get some of those conversations and and you don't want to miss those today we'll be talking about child poverty and how child poverty has gone up this year because of policy decisions that people have made and so we're going to get into that and if you want more of the church politics podcast you need to become a premium subscriber if you happen to be watching this on youtube and our our youtube audience is growing but it's still not as big as our itunes and 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 otherwise if you're watching on YouTube, make sure that you like and subscribe so we can get this to more people. All right. All this stuff matters. All this stuff helps. And we greatly appreciate you. So we got a lot coming up today. I think you'll enjoy our conversation. So grab your Bible, get your mind right and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but to think like a Christian. And we will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the And Campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the And Campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. The And Campaign's guide to faithful civic engagement that we publish with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. (laughs) 
and we are back on the church politics podcast with justin gibney and the right reverend christopher butler you know how this usually goes chris i want to start this conversation off with scripture i want to start off in leviticus 19 verses 33 through 34 if you don't mind and it says when a foreigner resides among you in your land do not mistreat them the foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born love them as yourself for you were foreigners in egypt i am the lord your god Uh, Whenever you see that I am the Lord, your God, it's a reminder, I think, of authority uh, and that you should be following the words that came before it. Chris, the Bible is clear and consistent. It's consistently clear about how we should treat the immigrant in our midst. Right. So Leviticus 19 is not the only place where we see this. We see this over and over again. We are told to treat that we're they're supposed to be treated as our neighbors. Uh, And if they're suffering, that they're supposed to be treated self-sacrificially. The Bible restates that principle over and over again. It's all through the Old Testament. It's reemphasized as a principle by Jesus and so on, because I know some of you don't want to listen to the Old Testament. Y'all just want the red words. Well, even if you just follow the red words, which is problematic, you'll see it there, too. Right. This is something that's that's an ongoing theme within the Bible. So it should be clear to us that we're supposed to treat immigrants well, that we're not supposed to mistreat them. But here's the hard part of that for Christians, right? It's, it, it's, it can be somewhat complicated as we apply it. Must we ignore, and this is a quick, quick question I got to ask you, Chris, must we ignore all practical safety and economic concerns as we follow that principle? Some would say, look, The truth of the matter is, if we're overwhelmed by migrants, then eventually we won't have anything to give. So the question is, can we put practical limits on this kind of charity? How do we consider innocent young lives that might be placed at risk or might in one way or another, you know, things may become lawless. The situation may become unhealthy. It may become financially unsustainable or otherwise destructive. Can we take that into consideration? Can we help within reason? Is there a place where if we go too far, it would actually be reckless? Okay, so I want you to keep what the scripture tells us to do very clearly and practical concerns in mind as you listen to what New York City Mayor Eric Adams had to say about the city's immigration issue. Okay, so listen to this video real quick with those things in mind support and let me tell you something New Yorkers never in my life have I had a problem that I did not see an ending to I don't see an ending to this I don't see an ending to this this issue will destroy New York City destroy New York City we're getting 10,000 migrants a month One time we were just getting Venezuela, now we're getting Ecuador, now we're getting Russian speaking coming through Mexico, now we're getting uh, Western Africa, now we're getting people from all over the globe have made their minds up that they're going to come through the southern part of the border and come into New York City. And everyone is saying it's New York City's problem. 
Every community in this city is going to be impacted. We had a $12 billion deficit that we're going to have to cut. Every service in this city is going to be impacted. All of us. And so I say to you, as I turn it over to you, this is some, some of the most educated, some of the most knowledgeable, probably more of my commissioners and deputy commissioners and chiefs live in this community. So as you ask me a question about migrants, tell me what role you played. How many of you organized to stop what they're doing to us? How many of you were part of the movement to say, we're seeing what this mayor is trying to do and they're destroying New York City? It's gonna to come to your neighborhoods. All of us are going to be impacted by this. I said it last year when we had 15,000. I'm telling you now, with 110,000, the city we knew, we're about to lose. And we're all in this together. All of us. Staten Island saying, send them out to Manhattan. Manhattan is saying, send them out to Queens. Queens is saying, send them out to Brooklyn. No. It's not the game we can play. That was deep. That was a statement that you probably wouldn't expect to hear from someone in the Northeast of America, from someone that's progressive, from someone that's a Democrat. And I want to go over a few things, Chris, that he that he said. He said, never in my life have I had a problem that I didn't see an ending to. I don't see an ending to this. This issue, and this is a quote, will destroy New York City. They are destroying New York City. We're about to lose the city we know. Now, Chris, this isn't a, a small issue. I mean, we might have some differences in how he said it. They are ruining, you know, New York City. It's not every it's not all immigrants, you know, but I'm sure he was upset. We do have to understand that they're receiving 10,000 new migrants a month and that they have a 12 billion dollar or will have a 12 billion dollar deficit due to this issue or due in part to this issue. So I want to raise the question to you, Chris, because that's why we have you here. You, you solve these hard, complicated issues. We know that we have to treat migrants well, that we have to treat them fairly, that we have to treat them like ourselves, like we would treat people in our family. What does that mean exactly for practical policy concerns and practical concerns within the community are we allowed to give this charity reasonably? Like, is there a limit that can be set? So, so go ahead, Chris, speak into this for us if you can. Yeah, I don't, I'm certainly not one to solve difficult issues, but we certainly are dealing with this issue in the city of Chicago, in one of the neighborhoods where we have one of our gatherings uh, at the church. This issue is, is right here where migrants are showing up on a regular basis. And, and you heard Mayor Adams talk about, he referenced a couple of years ago where it was in the tens of thousands of migrants that they had in New York. And then today it's in the hundreds of thousands. And these numbers are increasing exponentially and, and quickly. Chicago, you know, is not quite as large a city as New York, but is facing, I think, something like $2 billion deficit situation, a budget situation, trying to resettle migrants uh, in the city. And I, I think you got to be able to hold three things together in your mind at the same time. Number one is that progressive leaders should never have identified cities as sanctuary cities. 
because we did not have the resources and the infrastructure to actually do anything for anybody. And it's, it's particularly infuriating to me as a member of the clergy to use that word sanctuary, because it, at least in the Christian context, the idea of the sanctuary is that God is in the sanctuary, right? So the idea of help being in the sanctuary is not that just random people invite people into the sanctuary. There's this idea that this all-powerful and completely inexhaustible God is in the sanctuary. And so then there is help in the proverbial sanctuary. We don't have inexhaustible resources. And so to say, I don't like homelessness. You live in a big city like Chicago, you see a lot of homeless and it breaks your heart. But it would be cruel for me to go and pass flyers to folks and say, come over to my house and we're going to solve homelessness because I've got five kids and one on the way. You know, I used to be a relatively well-paid public affairs consultant, but the last seven years I've been a pastor living on on, on that salary. Uh, I don't have the resources and the infrastructure to solve that problem. And so to invite people uh, into a space and suggest to them that you're going to solve that problem when you don't have the infrastructure and the resources to do so, that's cruel. Uh, at the same time, it's cruel to use people as political pawns, right? For To me, for Republican governors to have started this thing of busing and flying people into other cities to make a political demonstration, to me, that is cruel and hugely problematic. But then while I'm against both of those things, you also have to recognize that I think the church in these cities still have to do whatever we can. And I think that begins with seeing these migrants as human souls created in the image of God, not as kind of like political abstractions. Uh, and we're actually in the process here at the church of building a ministry to reach to this particular migrant community living in a police station right in the neighborhood where we have one of our gatherings. And I tell you, Justin, you, you go down there and you look at an eight-year-old girl who sleeps outside every night, doesn't have a jacket or a coat, doesn't have proper food to eat. It breaks your heart. And it doesn't matter if she is from Ecuador, if she came on a bus, if the budget problem, that breaks the heart. And so you do what you can. Like we do what we can as a church. We try to gather jackets and coats and food and do what we can right there in that local area. But again, at Chicago Missy Church Network, we're not under the illusion that we can solve this problem in the whole city. There are migrants and police stations all over our city at this point. But we also recognize that in this police station, in this community where we are, we should do whatever we can. So I think all of those things have to be able to exist in our minds at the same time. No, that's good. I think you hit on hit on the the, the right dynamics. Look, we never want to give the impression on the Church Politics Podcast that once you under, once you read the Bible and understand God's principles, applying that to politics and policy is easy. That's not what we're here to say. We're, we're here to say that we should be faithfully, prayerfully making that effort, not that it's easy. And I think you, you point that out. Like Even when you want to do right, even when you want to be just and righteous, that doesn't mean that it comes with a bunch of easy policy answers or easy policy solutions. Uh, I think you hit on something very, very important, too. I don't agree with the whole playing games with immigrants. So whether it's in Texas or Florida, wherever, sending people to other places to prove a point, I think is wrong. Right. And because two things can be true at the same time, we can see that a lot of progressive politicians 
were being self-righteous before they actually had to deal with the problem. So you hear, see these people, they're you know talking bad about Florida, talking bad about Texas. Why don't you just take care of people? You don't care about people. Let me fly down to the border and have a photo op and tell everybody why Republicans are so terrible. And then when the immigrants come to you, you don't want to deal with them either. You don't have a plan, number one. You don't have the resources and you don't want to deal with them either. You don't necessarily want to add to your budget what some folks in the you know in other cities in the south have to add to their budget to deal with this problem. And I think that's a lesson for all of us in general, right? Be very careful when it comes to being self-righteous about somebody else's problem. Because until you really have that problem, you don't know how you would react. And hopefully God would have grace on you and you would be guided through that, but you don't know how you would react in other people's situation. So let's not allow our ideology to belittle the serious issues that other people are going through. And I think this is a very clear, Now I don't know if any progressives or partisans will ever admit it, but this is a very clear example of running your mouth about what somebody else should do and not really understanding the, the, the seriousness or how complicated the problem is. Okay. Now I'm going to try to, to some extent, answer the question that I posed and that I think Chris spoke into to some extent. All right. To answer my question, I think we have to make a faithful effort, okay? We cannot be half-hearted. We cannot be just going through the motions just to say we did what was right. That's not good enough. Doing just enough to make ourselves look good is not faithful. We have to make a real wholehearted effort to take care of the immigrant. That being said, I don't think that we have to completely ignore every other concern or conflicting good. And Chris, please correct me if I'm getting the end of this stuff wrong, okay? There are other considerations. And as we read the Bible, when it tells us how we have to treat immigrants, I don't think God is telling us to completely disregard all other considerations. But our effort cannot be led by self-interest. Our effort cannot be half-hearted. It must be sincere. We still have to be good stewards. Right. So so what I mean by that is we are told to give to the poor and we better do that even when it hurts. Right. We, we better be serious about that imperative. But I don't think that that means that we have to empty out our pockets or all of our accounts every time someone begs for money. That would actually, in many cases, be poor stewardship. OK, so we have. The imperative on one hand, the stewardship on the other, we can take into account reasonable concerns, but don't allow those reasonable concerns to pull you in a space where you're not making any sacrifices. And so I think what Chris was getting at and what I have to get at, too, is that there is no bright line rule. Right. As far as exactly what the policy should look like, but we have to take God's imperative that he's given us when it comes to migrants and also our stewardship. Seriously, knowing exactly what policy we're supposed to have in regard to this is tough. It's not easy. We have to look at what resources we have and we have to have a heart to help and to love others. Anything further than that, it's hard for me to tell you and there's not going to be it's a case by case thing and you have to go about it prayerfully. Anything you need to correct. I mean, does that make sense to you, Chris? Is is that getting closer to an answer. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, a, a perfect answer. You know, ho- hopefully, 
people here that sort of like structured answer and get a vision of some kind of application of what that looks like. At the long term, this should really be creating an environment in the country where both sides can come together and actually get actual immigration reform done uh, so that we have an immigration system that is just uncompassionate and works. Yeah. So if you're on the conservative side of this and your number one issue is just making sure immigrants don't get in here and all the trouble they're causing, I think you might want to go back to Leviticus uh, 19 and read through that and, and say, man, is my heart where it needs to be on this issue? If that's my main issue and my main concern is just making sure that nobody else gets in here, is there something that I can add to that to make where I'm coming from more faithful? If you're on the progressive side of this and it's been, man, these Republicans, these conservatives are so terrible on this because, you know, because they're they're uh, saying that this can go too far. I think you need to look at what's going on in New York now. I think you need to look on what's going on in Chicago now and be a little less self-righteous. Maybe, possibly, even say we kind of got this wrong and that we need to be more considerate of what people on border states are going through. Because budgets are already tight as it is. It's very hard to add something that big as a budget item with everything else that's going on. Would I have stated it the way that Eric Adams did? He was frustrated. I think he probably could have stated that better. They are ruining, you know, I mean, that's just a little too much. It it ain't everybody. Some of these people are really struggling, but he's frustrated and he's looking at the budget and saying, y'all ain't really ain't going to like what I'm going to have to do if this does not change. And that's reality. Anything else, Chris? No, I think this is a a good segment. Hopefully we can get more folks in a lot of different cities around this country thinking together about this so you can get to a larger solution that really actually solves the problem and, and not continue to play these games. That is real. We will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney and the Right Reverend Christopher Butler, as always, brought to you by the Ann Campaign. Chris, I want to talk about, you know, we we talked a lot about the lack of trust that people have in government right now, the role that that could play in this coming election, the role that that could play just moving forward within our democracy is just not a good thing for democracy. So I welcome serious plans that try to reform what's going on in the country to hopefully kind of spark more or build more trust among the people. And I think Representative Ro Khanna, who is a congressman out in California, I think he represents the area that is, where is he at? I think he's in like the San Francisco area. I want to say he's in the Bay Area, uh, one of their representatives out there. And he introduced a new reform plan. And and here's what his new reform plan does. I think, Chris, that it's significant. I think it's something that people should pay attention to. But but here's what what he's trying to do. He wants to ban stock trading for congressmen and their spouses. If you wonder why a lot of these people go into office and then while they've been in office for a while, they become rich. In many cases, not all cases, in many cases, what they're doing is that they're going to Congress, getting insider information, using the information that they get from being on certain committees and they get from uh, other places and using it to make investments. 
that should absolutely be illegal. You should not be able to use insider information to make yourself rich as a congressperson. I mean, that's common sense. It, it should not be able to happen. If you look at how well some of these folks are doing with their stocks and all that stuff, either they're all experts or they have information that's giving them an advantage in the market. And that just shouldn't happen. He also wants to ban ex-Congress people from lobbying Congress after they leave Congress. I think that's a great idea. I truly believe, and Chris can correct me if he thinks I'm wrong, I truly believe that some people's votes and what they regulate and what they choose not to regulate are based on what job they can get after they leave Congress. So if I help you out enough, then you'll give me a job once I leave because you kind of owe me one. That should not happen. And if you ban them from lobbying Congress afterwards, I think it can help. It can stop folks from thinking in that way and voting in that way. Sometimes that those first two, to me, are very clearly corrupt. That's corruption. It, it shouldn't happen. OK. Next thing that I'll point out in his new plan is he would put a 12 year limit on Congress. Right. So you could only be in Congress for 12 years. That's six. What? You know, six terms. That's a term limit. Right. I support it. I mean, you look at folks who've been there forever. Nothing's changing. They're too, you know, it just needs to that needs to change. Now, that's a big that's a big one. And to expect Congress to vote on that, we'll talk about that later. It may not be likely, but I think it's, it could be necessary. He also wants to ban donations from lobbyists and political action committees. That's a major one. That's a I mean, that's major. But I would have to say and I'm not against people who run PACs. That's the law right now. Right. But I would have to say there's too much money in our politics and it's not helping. And this is one of those things that can get us to a place where we're taking the money out. Here's the big one. And I guess they're all big, but here's another big one. He wants to limit the Supreme Supreme Court justices to 18 years on the bench. I don't know that that's unreasonable. One can become out of touch from being on the bench over 20 years or, or, or more. So that's reasonable, too. And Ro Khanna has asked Joe Biden to adopt these what he's called this what he calls anti-corruption plan. Now, I, I want to ask something to, to partisans. So to my my Democratic partisan friends, if the Democratic Party is as benevolent as you say, why won't they immediately accept and pass all or most of these reforms? Something to think about. To my partisan Republican friends, if the Republican Party is as righteous as you say, well, they should be ready to immediately accept or pass all or at least most of these reforms. And if they don't, if they play around with it, if they they just give it lip service but don't actually move on it, what does that say? Could it possibly say that the critics on the other side of the aisle have a point on some of this stuff? Is there corruption on your side? I know some of you don't want to believe that there's any corruption on your side. I would beg to differ. But here's what Ro Khanna had to say about why he's he's trying to push this forward. It's a quote out of the Huffington Post. He says this. There is a sense on both the left and the right of a crisis of confidence in our institutions, whether that is the Congress or the executive branch or the court. That level of anger has led to a rejection of politics, a sort of anti-politics. 
which has created an opening for all kind of demagoguery and sensationalism to fill the void. Unless the Democrats offer a bold vision of reform that we campaign on and deliver when we win, it's going to become harder and harder to prevent sensational and demagogue type figures from filling the void. He also said that he welcomes an incremental uh, kind of incremental approach to his vision. And let me just say this, Chris, and I'll pass it to you. Congressman Ro Khanna is a Democratic socialist. So he and I probably have some very serious disagreements on economics and on social issues. But I think this is the new brand of leadership that we need. That doesn't mean that we should pass all his policies, prescriptions on everything else. But he's trying to get something done and he knows that the status quo is unacceptable. And we have too many people in the Senate and in the House of Representatives that don't think the house, that the status quo is unacceptable, that benefit from the status quo, and they need to go. We need more people in both parties with this mentality. And that's my thing. I'm not focused on supporting all of his policy. I think that mentality would be helpful for Congress and our government in general. What are your thoughts, Chris? Yeah, I, mean, I, I certainly think that the policy, the mentality represented by the policy is exactly the kind of mentality and exactly the kind of thing that we need to see legislated. I think that if Republicans really wanted to give Congressman Rokana a heart attack, they would pick up this legislation in the House and start moving it through the process. I don't think that we're going to see President Biden pick this up and make this his campaign platform, even though most of these things that are included are pretty common sense and very well liked among the electorate. I don't think we'll see that. I don't think that we'll see Congresswoman Pelosi or Leader Jeffries become co-sponsors of this legislation. And honestly, maybe I've just grown too cynical, Justin, but if I could interview Congressman Rokana, I would ask him if he just realized that this crisis of competence exists in our politics. And if he just realized he went to a conference and heard about these policy proposals, because these are things that people have been talking about for a long time. And it is curious to me that he would introduce this legislation when the Republicans controlled the House of Representatives, when he was in the Congress for five years, when the Democrats controlled you know, the House of Representatives, and he did not introduce this legislation. So I want to say it's not the first time that he has brought it up. I'm trying to remember. I don't know when the first time was. This is the second time that he's propose some reforms. Yeah. I can't remember when the first time was. Though. Yeah. I don't recall a huge push on this uh, from Rokana when we were talking about Speaker Pelosi and not Speaker McCarthy. But I, but I will say he calls out Democrats and he says he we need to make this part of our campaign. Rokana does. And I would agree. I, I think both, both parties should say if we really made this part of our campaign and carried it out, that's foresight. That's saying, hey, we want to be the party that you can trust to do major things. But like you said, you don't expect that to happen from Biden, Pelosi, you know, anybody on the Republican side, you know, con- in Congress and they're leading over there. And, and I don't even expect. To be, so, so to me, I think the thing that I would if, and, and I'm, I don't know that we probably won't get to do this. But if I, if I were talking to Congressman Rokana, I would ask if these are the fundamental things I, I used to be a part of an organization. It doesn't exist uh, anymore. But in the late 2000s. Uh, called Fixed Congress First. 
the proposition was that you got to make these types of reforms in the United States Congress before anything else can happen. And this is back just when we we're talking about getting out of Iraq. I mean, like this is uh, like something that people have been talking about for a long time, because if people don't trust Congress, if members of Congress go to Congress and spend more time raising money and talking to special interest groups and donors and PACs, then they do thinking critically about policy and educating themselves and talking to constituents. The whole thing is broken. This has been the situation for a long time. If this is the fundamental thing, then if President Biden is not running on this, why are you endorsing him? If Speaker Jeffries is not embracing this, if Speaker McCarthy, Leader Jeffries, Speaker McCarthy are not doing this, why is this not what you were talking about on the House floor every time you get the mic? It just feels like to me that this could possibly be, I'm not saying that it is, that this could possibly be sort of this sort of exercise in, in talking the right way, but never really using power behind it to actually move people off the, off the dime. And while I appreciate the willingness of people to speak this way, I'm more appreciative of folks like you and me who have a podcast that people listen to and you talk about it. If you're a member of the United States House of Representatives, if you're an elected official of any sort, to the extent that you have power, I want to see you use that power to move these issues forward. If all you have is a podcast, then talk about it. Is That's pretty much what you can do. I would like to see... Rokana and others actually lean even more into this, not to take anything away from it. I appreciate it. I love it. He introduced this into Congress. That's more than you can say for a lot of people, but it's not nearly all the power that a member of Congress has to introduce a piece of legislation. That's true. And That's true. But, and let me say this too. Let me say this too. What role do we play in this? You just named a whole bunch of different people, some Democrats, some Republicans, what role do we play in this when we give people a pass just because they're in our party? Yeah. What role do we play in this when we're excited to get the speaker of the house or whoever, because they're black or they're this or they're that. And then they don't do any of this stuff. We're just happy they're there and they share an identity with us. Yeah. Is that really, is that really who we are? And is that really all we're going for? If so, then maybe we do have a role in this and we shouldn't just be blaming this on the people who are there because we're giving them the incentives to do what they're doing. That's true. Anything you want to end with, Chris? I think to your point, everybody who's listened to this podcast, whether you live in a Democrat representative's district or a Republican represented district, we should all, I'm going to do this. And I think all of us should call or email your congressperson and tell them that you would like to see them co-sponsor Ro Connor's reform package. Amen. Good stuff, guys. Well, I hope you appreciated this episode. We're going to keep bringing it to you. If you want to hear the next segment, you need to be on Patreon and check us out there. All right. All right, Ann Camp, you know what it is. There is a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ann Camp, we'll holler at you.
This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.